With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Second down. What is going through your head? I'm so proud of our program and what we've come. Last week was tough, and this week is about believing. Believe in one another, believe in this program, believe in our fans. These players, they get all the credit. You know, just let us coach not to screw it up. You had the confidence at halftime that your team was going to pull this off. Why? I have a lot of confidence in myself and this team, this program. That we'll go play anybody, anywhere, anytime. And we came into College Station and beat the number six team in the country. How, how cool is that? Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Strength. Now, here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to Chatting Yardage part of the Chatting Average family and brought to you by our friends at Sports Strength. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again, week three of the Chatting Yardage podcast. I am your host, Mr. Cam Matthews. As always, you can find me on Twitter at HeyCam93, or you can find the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. So happy you've joined us, wherever you may be listening, however you may be listening. We thank you for tuning in to this fine podcast. And boy, we have plenty to talk about this week, as, as you know, as you know, as college football fans, this past Saturday was nothing but short of amazing. Um, further proving the, the the idea that 2022 might be one of those historic seasons that we'll talk about for years to come. And, you know, it, it's funny how it always falls on, you know, anniversary type dates being 15 years past 2007 and uh, something eerily similar to 2007 happened this past week, and we'll we'll get to that in a moment, of course. But week two, full of shenanigans. Uh, it 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 started out, of course, last week with the fun of of uh, Ed Orgeron, Coach O, uh, telling his story uh, of his buyout meeting with LSU, which is just hilarious. If you haven't heard that, please go seek that out. Uh, I'll be surprised if you haven't heard it. Some great sound bites coming out of that as. There always are uh, when Coach O is on a mic. But yeah, Saturday opened up with uh, one of the biggest games of the week, if not the biggest game of the week in terms of in terms of national attention, and that was Alabama at Texas. And, you know, coming into this game, this, was, this, was, this wasn't necessarily a game that I think anybody fully expected Texas to to hang on like they did you know I think a lot of a lot of folks in the media had written off Texas um and you know I I didn't exactly have the highest hopes for the Longhorns in this one I expected this to be one of those games where uh, you know maybe the first quarter is interesting and then Bama pulls away and you know I even joked on the show account at halftime that like okay well I guess Nick Saban's going to put in the first stringers in in the second half you know half-heartedly joking that 
Bama does this. You know, it, it's not a surprise to ever see Alabama, you know, tight-knit uh, after a first quarter or even at halftime necessarily because we've seen it in the past. They do this, you know, every season at some point against an opponent that they probably shouldn't. And, of course, that's when the, the eyeball emojis start flying everywhere and, you know, everybody starts texting each other, you know, hey, you, you you need to flip over to this game and and see what's going on, you know, with, with Bama and um, you know, it, it kind of felt like that scenario where where you expect Alabama to to kind of turn it on at some point, and they never necessarily did. Now let, let's go ahead and get the the whole note of controversy out of the way of, of this one. Um, there there were some interesting calls, so to speak. Um, you know, I think it's funny that, that depending on what angle you look at uh, on that play in the end zone, it can either be a, an incomplete pass or it could very well be a safety. Um, you know, I was of the mindset on Sunday morning that it was an incomplete pass after what I had seen, where it appeared that Bryce Young had never touched the ground and the ball deflected off of a defender's helmet. And so, you know, you can't call for intentional grounding because the ball was... Uh, the, the ball was dictated in the air, yada, yada, yada. But then Sunday afternoon, I see another angle from facing into the end zone where it certainly appeared like Bryce Young's shin was down. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it's one of those scenarios where ugh, if that had gone Texas's way, especially when you lose by two, what, what does, how does that play out the rest of the game, you know, from that point forward? Uh, but I, I think too Texas had their chances in this one and, and just kind of just fell short. And, and one of the biggest things that they fell short on, uh, besides the fact that this is the most penalized Alabama performance under Nick Saban ever, fifteen penalties for a hundred yards. Texas made uh, five trips to the red zone in this game and only came away with one touchdown. And Coach Sarkeesian has said it as much, and other have said it as much and I'll say it as much when you get into the red zone that many times against Alabama one touchdown is just not going to do it uh you 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 know against a defense like Alabama has consistently every single year and you know with the size that they have if you are able to get into the red zone that many times you know half (laughs) five times you you have to come away with, with more than a field goal more often than not if, if you hope to come out for a win. Unless, of course, you have, you know, a defense like Georgia or, or something along those lines. But, it, you know, one one touchdown, it just isn't going to cut it. And I'll say this, too. Um, you know, when the AP poll came out Sunday afternoon and they had swapped essentially Georgia and Alabama at number one and number two. Personally, I think it makes sense. Uh, To this point, I think you could say that Georgia is unquestionably the best team in the country. Um, Alabama's still very good. Uh, I'm not writing them off whatsoever. They are more than likely the number two team in the country as it stands right now. But Alabama is not without its flaws this year. And, of course, you know, we haven't seen Georgia have a – quote, tough game yet, you know, they they stomped a probably very overrated Oregon team in week one, and then, of course, week two against Samford is, you know, a, a, a do-nothing kind of win, uh, but Bama showed, you know, they've got some weak spots, um, the, the offensive line is definitely a, a concern for the Tide, and quite frankly, 
offensive coordinator is a is a weak point uh, for this team as well with Bill O'Brien uh, calling the plays, uh, some questionable play calls in, in this one. But I will say that, you know, there, there's a lot of conversation coming into this season about just how good Bryce Young actually is. And, you know, does he have a chance to repeat for Heisman? And I'll say that that final drive that he was able to create for Alabama to get them within field goal range you know that that's the type of play th- those are the type of plays that's the kind of drive that elite players are able to pull off and so uh, you know for those with the notion that he's overrated or anything like that you know I point you to that play of especially that final play with with the dart out to the far sideline those are the kind of opportunities that elite players are able to take advantage of despite how their team is performing in front of them so, um, you know, Bama's got their flaws, but they're, they're still going to be very good this year. But, uh, you know, I'm, I've already got their game at Arkansas circled on the calendar, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I believe that'll be week five, five or six. Uh, so coming up fairly soon should be a good one uh, at, at Arkansas against the Pigs. Uh, Kentucky had a huge win over Florida on Saturday. Good for them. Um, a, t- a Kentucky team that really feels like it wasn't getting any love coming into the week. Everybody was looking at the shiny new toy that was Florida. And Florida seemingly came back down to earth this week. You know, I, it's hard to I, – I think, I think it's hard to evaluate a team properly when they come away with what is an upset win, which is what Florida over Utah was in a sense. Um, but for them to suddenly jump in, you know, high in the rankings the way they did after coming into week one unranked what was a little baffling to me. And I think that this game showed that Florida still has a ways to go in terms of putting together a, a complete team. Kentucky, again, came into the swamp and had a good, just gritty win. And, and that's the way that this team plays. Um, it, and shout out to, you know, Coach Mark Stoops, who uh, I believe is not only the longest tenured coach in Kentucky football history, but is now the winningest coach in in Kentucky history, um, surpassing Bear Bryant this past Saturday night with his win over Florida. So uh, Kentucky's a dangerous team. Uh, They're they're a very well-rounded, just gritty, physical team, and that, that was on that was on display Saturday night against Florida. Uh, speaking of statement wins, BYU had a, had a great statement win late Saturday night over Baylor. Uh, and so that, that allowed BYU to really jump up into the standings again. You know, BYU is a team that I feel like is often slept on, mostly because they're an independent. But, you know, you're talking about a team that consistently is putting 8, 9, 10 wins uh, in the record book you know, year in, year out. And then uh, Tennessee had a good win over Pitt. Um, You know, that that game uh, was really back and forth, went into overtime, you know, at several points uh, throughout the first half. It looked like Pitt could, you know, could pull away with it. Then eventually it looked like Tennessee could pull away with it with the turnovers. And, uh, you know, Pitt was able to scrap back into that one and force overtime. And But a, a good win for a Tennessee team that is still – uh, in the in the in the mold of kind of a rebuild, uh, so to speak. Well, I tell you though, uh, it, looking around, you know, looking around some of kind of the the fun facts uh, of the weekend that that come out. Uh, I think it's safe to say that the state of North Carolina, you know, greatest state there is to live in. Uh, not that I'm biased or anything, uh, but if it's officially a football state, right? So the Big Four of uh, Wake Forest, Duke, NC State, and North Carolina are two and zero with. UNC actually being 3-0 and just because they played in week zero. 
but that is the first time that the Big Four are undefeated through week two to start the season at the same time for the first time ever. So 1892 was the first year that all four schools fielded a team. That's 130 years ago. And so it took this long for uh, for all four schools to be undefeated through uh, through the first two weeks in the same season. And I will also throw out that North Carolina is the only state with four undefeated teams at this point. And now, you know, that that, that is the big four that we're talking about. But there's also a, also a team up in the mountain range that uh, we'll, we'll be talking about. Uh, some today. Now, of course, uh, you can't talk about week two without talking about all of the upsets, and that's the most fun that I think we all were able to have, unless, of course, you were a fan of particular teams that were involved in such upsets on the bad side. Uh, Marshall Thundering Herd take down the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in South Bend by a final score of 26-21. to 21. Uh, the, a, a great win, one that uh, one that I caught around halftime, uh, and I saw that you know Marshall was, was putting it to Notre Dame. Uh, quite frankly, uh, and it, this game, this victory was large in part due to Marshall's defense. They were able to force three turnovers, two of which occurred in the fourth quarter, uh, with tremendous pressure on Notre Dame's quarterback. You know, uh, made him uh, have to go with bad throws that resulted in interceptions. Um, and this is this is actually the second time in, in doing my research that Marshall has defeated an AP top 10 team. Uh, their first uh, their first upset came back in 2006 where they took down number six Kansas State. So a uh, really fun win there, but boy, uh, the Irish the Irish have some problems this season. Uh, of course, one of the other upsets on Saturday was Georgia Southern taking down Nebraska uh, 45-42. to Now, uh, prior to this game, Nebraska was 214-0 when scoring at least 35 points at home. And uh, that changed on Saturday. They are now 214-1 and one in, that, in that stat. Uh, Georgia Southern's offense also put 642 yards of offense on the board against Nebraska. Ooh. Now, not a... Not not a not a uh, not a pretty loss whatsoever if there is such a thing. And then, as I hinted at before, Appalachian State does it again. Uh, Fifteen years and one week after Appalachian takes down number uh, or takes down number five Michigan in the Big House, they go into College Station and take down the number six team in the country, Texas A&M, by a final score of seventeen to fourteen. Now. This is a game where you look at the team that lost and you can't help but think, boy, you guys have some serious issues. Now, of course, Texas A&M has, has run the world seemingly when it comes to recruits and NILs uh, over the past couple of years. They have tremendous talent on this team, and yet one you know one major problem is that their head coach refuses to give up the play calling another problem is that they have a stagnant offense that you know hasn't evolved since 2014 people are starting to say um consider the fact that Appalachian held the Aggies to less than 200 yards of offense 200 yards in a full game for a team like Texas A&M a team that did not have a play in Appalachian's territory until i believe the fourth quarter and this is no this is no discredit to App whatsoever, because at some point teams are gonna learn to stop scheduling them. 
Um, it, it does amaze me that every every couple of years, it seems, a, a big Power 5 school it, it schedules app, right? And I know the schedules are made, you know, up to, up to almost a decade in, in advance, right? And you never know how a team's going to turn out. I mean, consider the fact that, you know, North Carolina got taken to the limit by Georgia State on Saturday, and this was a game that was scheduled eight years ago when Georgia State was not doing so hot. Um... So, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, why do they schedule that? Well, things change over time between when you schedule it. But Appalachian, since they upset Michigan 15 years ago, has done nothing but walk into Power 5 schools and take them to the absolute limit. You know, I think back to a few years ago where they took Tennessee to overtime. Like, the only bad loss they've had against a Power 5 school was LSU a few years ago. Other than that, it has been relatively close uh, when app plays bigger schools, this is just a thing that they do incredibly well, um, and so uh, you think one day schools are schools are going to learn. But A and M has some has some problems that they they really do, and we'll talk about that a little bit later as we you know look ahead to this coming weekend. And also, there's the entire debacle about their midnight yell session the night before the game. Which, if you've never seen a midnight yell session, uh, you're you're probably fortunate, but uh, essentially it's a midnight pep rally before every uh, Texas A&M football game, and it, it's you know very corny, very cheesy, and uh, one of the uh, one of the guys leading it down front tried to riff on App State, and in hindsight, whenever you you see the video, it just makes it all the sweeter uh, that the Mountaineers were able to to take down the Aggies and. Apparently, Texas A&M wasn't too happy that this video got out, or at least they weren't too happy that they got spanked, and then it came out because uh, they have been they have been copyright claiming the video uh, wherever they happen to see it, including on our Twitter page. Uh, they they got us twice uh, this week already, so I didn't know that uh, didn't know that they were so scared down there in College Station of looking bad. But if you're so scared of looking bad, then you probably shouldn't have scheduled App State. Well, that's enough of me rambling uh, to open this week's show. Our first segment of the week, as always, is Four Down Territory. Let's do it. First down. Nebraska fired football coach Scott Frost on Sunday, one day after their 45-42 home loss to Georgia Southern. Nebraska at 1-2 had been a three-touchdown favorite going into that game. Scott Frost will receive his full $15 million buyout. The buyout, of course, would have dropped to $7.5 million on October 1st. At least as reported, he will receive the full buyout. Now, there is speculation that there have been additional terms added to the buyout, which have not yet been made public as of this recording. But as of now, you can assume that he received the full amount. Frost seemed like the perfect fit to restore Nebraska to glory after the Huskers fired Mike Riley in 2017. Scott was, of course, in his second year as UCF head coach and in the middle of a historic 13-0 season in which the Knights self-declared a national championship and seemingly overnight became one of the hottest coaching candidates in the country. But from the beginning of his tenure in 2018, Frost was just never quite able to get the Huskers going. Nebraska, once a perennial bowl team, never had a winning season under Scott Frost. Nebraska is 5-22. That is a .185 winning percentage in one score game since Frost was hired. No other FBS team has more than 16 one-score losses in that same span. 
Now, Scott Frost ends his Nebraska coaching career with a 16-31 and 31 mark, the second lowest winning percentage of a Nebraska coach with more than two seasons at the helm. And I know what you're thinking. It's easy to look at this situation and say that, oh, well, Scott Frost comes out smelling like a dozen roses. $15 million suddenly hitting your bank account is nothing to turn your nose up at. And sure, there are still jobs out there for the guy whether it be taking over at a smaller program with less spotlight or even setting a spell under the shade of the Saban coaching tree, as we've seen so many do, he has more opportunities. This by no means is the end of Scott Frost. But consider the fact that at the time, this was a slam dunk, no doubt hire. Scott Frost, the prodigal son of Nebraska, a two-time national champion quarterback, had returned home after much notoriety at UCF to finally right the ship for the Huskers and return them to glory. The university was proud, the boosters were optimistic, and Frost seemed happy. But then it didn't work. Sure, money is great, but pride and self-worth are invaluable. And yes, Scott Frost will be fine in the long run, I'm sure. But in this situation as it stands right now, I'm certain there is nobody that feels worse about things that have transpired than Scott Frost. Second down. In case you missed it, or tuned out during our opening segment of the show this week, the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame are off to an 0-2 start this season. How bad is this current streak? Well, new head coach Marcus Freeman is the first coach in school history to start his tenure 0-3 which dates back to their bowl game last season, 0-3. That has never happened to a new coach for Notre Dame. Notre Dame began this season as the fifth-ranked team in the country, which of course was quickly washed away by a week one loss to Ohio State and then further kicked down the steps by the upset from Marshall. And sure, Notre Dame's record over the past five, seven seasons aren't horrible, four out of the last five seasons. I've seen Notre Dame ranked higher than their preseason spots, which means they climbed in the rankings by the end of the year. They've had double-digit wins seven times since 2012 and have appeared in one national championship game and two playoff games. On paper, the Irish do not seem like they are in the pit of despair that so many assume they should be in, but consider this. Notre Dame has lost three of their last five bowl appearances. They are 0-2, in the two playoff games that they've appeared in by a combined score of 61-17. to And I suppose we don't even need to mention the national championship game against Alabama a decade ago. During their most recent five-season stretch of success, which is really the the, the pinnacle of Brian Kelly's career so far, Brian Kelly went 54-10. Notre Dame went only 10-9 against opponents that finished this season ranked in that stretch and finished 1-4 against opponents that were within the top 10 of the AP poll at the end of the year. So, sure, some will tell you that the Irish are still working with, quote, sustained excellence, but for a program with the perceived prestige as those from South Bend, why why is this still good enough to skate on? And... I look, at, I look at this from the standpoint of a fan that when you talk about the Mount Rushmore of college football teams, Notre Dame is always in the conversation. But we talk about teams like Texas, Miami, Nebraska, underperforming for years now, not being the, quote, powerhouse that they, want, that they once were, but all three of those schools have a more recent national championship than Notre Dame does. 
well, Notre Dame has had better seasons than those guys you just mentioned. I'm not talking about a team like Washington or Baylor or Oklahoma State where good seasons are expected and respected. No shade on any of those programs I just mentioned. But it does beg the question, are perennial nine-win seasons built on the backs of lenient schedules with no conference structure enough for a team to continue enforcing the idea that we should take Notre Dame seriously? Or as they continue to be surpassed in all-time wins, which they were jumped again this past weekend, and as recruiting grades continue to fall, Brian Kelly can be thanked for that, will the national media's adornment finally begin to wear out and show that Unlike their helmets, as you'll quickly be reminded, that Notre Dame's current prestige is nothing but fool's gold. Third down. So, we're two weeks into the season. Have uh, have you happened to pay attention to Iowa's scores in their first two games? The Hawkeyes have played eight quarters of football in 2022 and have one touchdown on the season. Four of those quarters were against an FCS team. In their Week 2 rivalry game, Iowa State gained 21 first downs, and that's the same total as Iowa through the first two games. So it it begs the question, how does a Power 5 team, a team that has been ranked in recent years, get to this point? Well, for one, it goes back to recruiting. Iowa only has one real scholarship wide receiver contributing to the team this year. And yes, let's not gloss over the fact that Iowa's defense is tremendous. By no means do I want to disparage what their defense is able to do over the past few years, including this season. Iowa's 2021 season is a case study because they won 10 games with one of the worst offenses in the country. But this season, well, the defense is still there, as expected, the Hawkeyes have possibly one of the best punters in the game in Tory Taylor, but the offense is quite possibly worse than we could have ever imagined. Just how bad are they? Iowa's offense has produced just 316 total yards and one rushing touchdown in two games. Iowa is averaging 158 yards per game and just 2.8 yards per play with 2.3 yards per carry. Fifth-year senior quarterback Spencer Petras is completing just 45.1% of his passes and has thrown just one touchdown pass and nine interceptions in the last nine games dating back to last season. They are also the only team in the country with more punts than points this year. It sounds abysmal, right? Well... Hawkeye fans have been begging for at least two or three seasons now for Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz and his, or his son Brian, who, by the way, is the offensive coordinator. That's awkward. To institute some change to the offense. But we have seen this scenario time and time again across sports. Ferentz has been the head coach of the program since 1999, making him the longest tenured head coach in the FBS. So... What typically happens when a coach refuses to adapt? Sure, the results are there, 10-4 and overall last season, finishing in the top 25, but with a stellar defense like the Hawkeyes have had, and I'm talking about top 10 defense for years now, 
how much more success could this team have seen with just a few more points on the board? Fourth down. The Sun Belt, a.k.a. the Fun Belt, came away from Saturday's action looking incredible, to say the least. Three solid upsets plus a near upset with Georgia State falling by one score to North Carolina. The Sun Belt put their stamp on the 2022 season. No matter what comes the rest of this year, week two will always belong to the Fun Belt. Now, for those of you that don't know, the Sun Belt consists of 14 teams who, all things considered, are located within fairly close proximity to each other. And every single one of these teams has a quirk, has a personality, which makes the entire conference nothing but rivalry-driven chaos. Annual Bridesmaids Conference USA and the AAC wish they could be as incredible as the Sun Belt currently is. So, just how different are the personalities and makeups of these teams? Well, here's a few examples. So, Appalachian State lost to North Carolina in Week 1 after giving up 63 points at home. Then they went into Texas A&M and allowed only 7 offensive points. Kick return for a touchdown was the other 7 points. Appalachian State are the football incarnation of the Pokemon Ditto. They become you, they look just like you, and in ways, become better than you can be. Coastal Carolina runs the triple option, but out of a spread offense. They are the absolute worst teal nightmare you can ever imagine or have cooked up in a video game somewhere. Georgia Southern, like their mascot Gus the Eagle, takes to the skies having thrown for over 400 yards against Nebraska in Week 2. And Georgia State runs with an RPO-based offense that can be the absolute kryptonite to many a Power 5 team. And that's only brushing the surface, because there are plenty of other talented teams within this conference. How talented? Well, Appalachian State has gained so much notoriety this past week that College Game Day will be in Boone, North Carolina this coming Saturday, as Appalachian hosts conference rival Troy. Look for a good one there and a really cool atmosphere. Week 2 by no means was the last Saturday that we will get to delight in the absurdity of the Sun Belt. For some, it was and will continue to be enjoyable to see their upsetting of household brands, their slaying of giants. But my friends, make no mistake about it. Just like death and taxes, sure enough, someday, no matter who you pull for, the Sun Belt comes for us all. And now, just as we do each and every single week, I will send things over to the official chatting yardage mascot correspondent, Alex Butler, with today's Mascot Minute. Hey everybody, this is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. In keeping with this episode's Sunbelt theme, today we will be featuring Gus the Eagle from Georgia Southern University. On January 30th, 1982, there was a new, distinct vibe in the air. No one exactly knew what was different about that day, but everyone could tell that day was indeed different. Students, staff, and your regular Statesboroans all came together like they usually do for a basketball game in Hanner Fieldhouse. After everyone was settled, 
they truly knew their lives and the lives of all future GSU students, and honestly the world, were changing for the better. There in the middle of the gym was a five foot tall, three foot wide egg. After some exciting PA and a dramatic buildup, Gus was born. The early fuzzy chick Gus immediately became a fan favorite, hyping up crowds and in basketball and football games alike. Since then, Gus has developed, evolved, and luckily throughout the years, only become more handsome and buff. Those two eyebrows merged to one, his dark feathers started to show, and lo and behold, we gained our first modern Gus. But at this point, Gus wasn't finished growing. The fear of God and monobrows were strewn into the hearts of opposing teams and fans each time they visited Statesboro. After years of more developing and living, Gus became what everybody knows him as today, the handsome, built hunk of an eagle that he is. Gus, since gaining his new look, has become sentient. The loud, tweeting, sassy, athletic freak of a mascot has been nominated for ESPN's favorite mascot. His recent work includes getting Blooper to Statesboro from his humble abode in Smyrna for the GSU football game against BYU. Now Gus, both online and in person, steals the hearts of opposing fans using his seductive dancing, cool tricks, and funny demeanor. His Twitter is one of his best works. If you ever want to know what goes through that thick head of his, just follow his Twitter. He doesn't hold back and I can promise you that. Just like his football team, and honestly the university in general, Gus may be a small town icon, but you best believe me, never bet against him or the Eagles he lives to cheer for. Just like Florida has learned, and now Scott Frost figured out, it won't go well. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on the show? Hit us up at Chatting Yardage on Twitter and let us know. If you didn't guess yet, this edition of the Mascot Minute was suggested on Twitter by Gus the Eagle himself. Once again, this has been Alex Butler here with your Mascot Minute. Now it's time for the pick six games of the week. Six games that I find interesting and I believe you should too. First game of the week I'm going to highlight is Purdue at Syracuse. This is a noon kickoff on Saturday on ESPN2. Uh, an interesting matchup between two teams that are, there are still a lot of questions of how good they really are. Syracuse quarterback Garrett Schrader has thrown for 529 yards this season with a 79% completion rate and zero interceptions. In fact, Syracuse has yet to turn the ball over on offense through two games. And on the other hand, Syracuse secondary has allowed their first two opponents to connect on almost 80% of their passes from mid to long range. So this could be a high-scoring game, and the key to this one for Purdue, if you're wanting to come away with a victory, will be to keep the Syracuse offense off the field. The Orange have dominated time of possession through through week one and week two. Keep the Syracuse offense off the field and be efficient in the pass game, and it could spell, uh, spell doom for the Orange, who are actually favored in this one. Second game of the week, number 12, BYU at number 25, Oregon. 3.30 kickoff on Fox, the big Fox channel. BYU climbing in the rankings after an impressive win uh, last week over Baylor. Uh, you know, again, I, believe, I feel like this is a BYU team that a lot of folks are are going to sleep on and not necessarily give the proper respect uh, that, that they deserve. Uh, but the Cougars 
uh, come into Oregon to take on the Ducks and BYU Oregon. Uh, they're you know both ranked, of course, in the latest AP poll um, at Oregon. This will actually be the first time that BYU and Oregon have played each other since 2006, when BYU beat Oregon in the Las Vegas Bowl, and this is the first regular season meeting. Since 1990, 32 years it has been since these two teams met in the regular season. And back on that date, uh, number four, BYU, which was led by at the time Heisman winner Ty Detmer, fell to the Ducks uh, at Oregon. The Ducks are actually a three-and-a-half point favorite in this one, despite being uh, under-ranked compared to BYU. But, of course, Brigham Young does not mind playing spoiler. In fact... That's what they did last Saturday against Baylor. And, you know, if you were able to stay up for that game, it was a, just a tremendous contest that went into overtime and just a very solid win for BYU and not necessarily a bad loss for Baylor, who still has high aspirations for this season. Now, of course, if, if Baylor uh, is pulling for anybody in this game, they're pulling for BYU because they need they need Brigham Young to, uh, to continue having a really good year. An interesting note, for this game is that for the first time since 2015, BYU is playing a true road game against an opponent that will not be making any return visits to Provo. So instead of uh, instead of a return visit to BYU, the Ducks are actually paying number 12 BYU 1.1 million dollars to play this game. It's not very often that you see a big program or a ranked one at that getting paid to come play a game that is not going to be uh, not going to be returned the following year for a second uh, second matchup. So interesting note there, but a good afternoon game to turn on after the uh, after the noon slate uh, completes uh, their games. Game three of the week that you should keep an eye on number 22 Penn State at Auburn 330 kickoff on CBS. We'll get to hear the great CBS football jingle this Saturday afternoon, and I'm sure we'll all be all be dancing in our living rooms to that. But uh, all in all, this game is kind of a litmus test for, for both teams, a, a real test to see where each one is, especially after both come off of disappointing 2021 campaigns. Uh, Penn State, despite being ranked uh, pretty pretty mightily over Auburn, comes in as only a three-point favorite, so the, the odds makers not not exactly confident uh, in, in the Nittany Lions in this one. And it's going to be a tough test because Auburn is, is just has been and always will be a, a very tough place for road teams to come in and play unless you are uh, Georgia or Alabama. Uh, this is the this is the fourth all-time meeting between the schools which actually only began in 1996. Kind of surprising uh two two you know teams rich with history did not meet for the first time until 1996. Penn State is 2 and 1 so far of course with the most recent win coming last season by a final of 28 to 20. So it was a good Good, uh, good game last year. Uh, technically, a one-score game uh, in in the final outcome, uh, and with a three-point uh, three-point favorite for Penn State, this could be a fun one to watch. And again, it's a game that I'm not sure that Auburn necessarily has anything to lose in this one, whereas Penn State really can't afford to lose. You're already clinging to a number 22 ranking. Uh, you know, Penn State has to come away with a victory in this one. And that's what makes Auburn so dangerous is that they really don't have anything to lose. And, you know, those are the teams you have to watch out for. 
Game number four, Mississippi State at LSU, an early season SEC rivalry game. These are always fun to take in. Uh, Mississippi State has cruised in their first two matchups, uh, and after a brutal loss in week one, LSU, of course, put a hurting on Southern University last Saturday. What makes this so interesting that this will be Brian Kelly's first rivalry game in the SEC uh, since taking over a coaching job at LSU, and it, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a big test in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think either of these teams necessarily have high ceilings this year. Uh, you know, Mississippi State is what it is underneath Mike Leach, and I think that's a fan base that is their patience with him is starting to wane a little bit. I think they definitely expected more than they have to this point because um, they have they simply have not gotten. Mike Leach of Washington State at Mississippi State so far in his tenure. And then, of course, with LSU, you know, this is a fan base that wasn't that long ago. They were national champions. And then it was a quick nosedive, a quick exit for Coach O, and then a, a kind of a, an interesting hire in Brian Kelly. And there's there's high expectations for him, of course. You know, Brian Kelly, who winning his coach in Notre Dame history, you know, say what you want about the guy, but, you, you know, you can't dispute that fact. But this is going to be a big test for him, not only and not only for his coaching, but this game is going to be a big test all around. Also for the LSU's faithful's patience under this new regime, because a loss for Brian Kelly here is only going to make that seat a little bit hotter. Game number five this week, Texas Tech at number 16, NC State. This is a 7 p.m. kickoff on ESPN2. NC State, a nine-and-a-half point favorite coming into this one. But what makes it interesting is that the Red Raiders will travel to Raleigh coming off an emotional double overtime victory against Houston last Saturday while the Wolfpack glided to an easy win over Charleston Southern, which was a good thing for them after just sneaking by ECU in their opening contest and Maybe getting a little bit lucky in that week one uh, clash as well. This game is, when you look at the stats, this game is a very much an interesting clash of styles. Through two games, Texas Tech has relied more heavily on their passing game, while NC State has been a little more evenly balanced in their attack. You know, with Texas Tech's offense, in terms of yardage, it's like a 4-1 to one ratio between passing yards and rushing yards, whereas State... There's not a whole lot of variance uh, between in the air and on the ground. So, you know, Texas Tech really just bringing back that, uh, you know, that air raid offense, of course, to be expected from a team called the Red Raiders, uh, an air raid offense uh, that we've gotten used to seeing over the years from Texas Tech. But this is going to be a true test for them, uh, the the visiting team. And, um, you know, kind of going back to to what I said earlier about Penn State and Auburn, you know, for Texas Tech, th- this is more of a test than anything to see where this team currently stands at, at, you know, after two wins to start the year. And then for, so it's not necessarily a do or die situation for them, but for NC State, th- this very much is a, a must win game. Um, you know, this state team has high aspirations uh, you know, especially for a major bowl game this year. Um, so a, a loss at home to an unranked Texas Tech team in, in a game in which you're favored by almost 10 points w- would be highly detrimental, especially considering that State still has to play uh, Wake Forest and Clemson 
this year as well, which is going to be their toughest games of the season. So, uh, you know, th- I feel like this is going to be a, a re- this could be a really sneaky game. Um, I, you know, I, I think State does come out on top, but Texas Tech might surprise us a little bit, especially in the early goings, if they can, you know, if they can bust off a couple of big plays to, to open this one. Game number six of the week, our second, and I believe it's our, our only other uh, contest this Saturday between two ranked teams. Number 16, Miami, travels to College Station to take on number 24, Texas A&M. This is a 9 p.m. start on ESPN, so nightcap game for those of you who look to maybe get to bed at a somewhat decent hour and not stay up for some late-night patching. Uh, 9 p.m. start on this one. Texas A&M is a near six-point favorite over Miami ahead of their game Saturday night. Uh, the Aggies, of course, lost to Appalachian State this past Saturday as an 18-point favorite in that game. Miami failed to cover the 25-point spread in a 30-7 to victory over Southern Mississippi on Saturday as well. Miami's offense has been a bit sluggish at times this year, and, and I think it's one of those situations where, very much like Texas A&M, they are trying to figure out where to go and what buttons to push. Um, Miami scored a field goal on their opening drive against Southern Mississippi, but Miami then didn't score again until a touchdown run with 20 seconds left in the first half, and then on the flip side, Texas A&M, again, only had 186 yards and seven points on offense against Appalachian State on Saturday. So two very stagnant offenses that are that are a bit surprising considering the talent that both of these teams have in that regard. And this is a game that feels crucially important for, for both schools at the end of the day. And that's why this is going to be a really interesting one to watch. Um, the optics of a loss for Miami aren't great. Uh, you know, you, you lose if Miami loses to Texas A&M, then you know you do the whole mind pretzel thing. Of, well, Miami lost to Texas A&M, who lost to Appalachian, and yada yada yada. And you know, there there's the there's the conundrum that comes with all of that, especially when it comes to rankings and evaluations. You know, and and the weight of losses and wins. And then, you know, there's high expectations for Miami coming into this season as well that a loss to A&M would qualm those you know, immediately and then a loss for Texas A&M only spells doom really for the remainder of their season because their schedule only gets tougher from here in the coming weeks uh, and in fact you know in the next four weeks A&M has an absolutely brutal schedule with this possibly being their easiest game over the next month so it, it's it's a must win for both it certainly feels like, you know, and I don't think Texas A&M is necessarily doomed for this season after getting upset last week. But, you know, for the Haggies, you've got to win this Saturday. And then for Miami, who certainly has, you know, some tough games down the road this year, but, you know, plays in the plays in the Coastal Division for the ACC and, you know, that that's the, co- the whole coastal chaos thing of a different team making it to the ACC championship for the past seven, eight years. They have an easier path to a to a good, potentially conference championship winning season here. But we still don't know enough about them to, you know, put a stamp of confidence on the Hurricanes either. So 
Will this be a good game? Will this be a competitive game? Will this be a true sicko game where it's, you know, seven to three in the fourth quarter? Who knows, but I know we will be watching. The extra point. What could possibly make upsetting a top 10 team in their own stadium that much sweeter? Well, getting paid $1.25 million to do so sure helps. And that's exactly what the Marshall Thundering Herd were paid to take on and take down Notre Dame this past Saturday. So the extra point of the week goes to Marshall. And playing us out this week, the Marshall University Marching Thunder with their fight song, Sons of Marshall. Until next week, I'm Cam Matthews. This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode. Thank you.